0: Hey guys, before I start this episode, there's a few disclaimers I need to mention. While editing this episode, I realized I misspoke about the percentage of white males who have died in the state of Alabama due to COVID-19. In the episode, I say that the percentage is 60%, when I meant to say 68%. I also mix up the concepts of false positives and false negatives. At some point in the episode, I used the example of confusing a stick for a snake. I mistakenly referred this as false negative, when it actually is. False positive. So, with those corrections being said, I hope you enjoyed this episode today, and as always, question everything with logic. In mainstream society, conspiratorial ideologies are oftentimes met with ridicule and disbelief. Claims of our moon being an artificial spaceship for the Ununakis and fluoride water causing increased homosexuality are some of many conspiracy theories that are often expressed to be true. However, not all conspiracies are followed with the word theory. On today's episode, we will learn about one of the most unethical and infamous experiments in African American history, an event that is filled with the violation of human rights and scientific abuse that is often cited by African Americans to be one of the main reasons why many have no faith in the COVID-19 vaccine, the US healthcare system, and scientists. I am your social chemist Nelson, and today, we're covering the Tuskegee experiment of 1932 to 1972. If you're listening on Spotify, click on that follow button for me. If you're listening on Apple Podcasts, click on that subscribe button and leave me a five star review. By doing so, you help expose this podcast to people who might be interested in conspiracy theories within politics. You can follow me on Facebook and on Instagram at The Social Chemist. If possible, share this podcast with your friends to have some interesting discussions about today's episode. For this episode, you can find all the references under the description section or on the Social Chemist Facebook page. With that being said, let's dive in. So as of this recording, the vaccine rollout has already commenced in the U.S. I believe now everyone is able to get their vaccine shot, which is a good thing. To my knowledge, I believe more than half of the American population has already gotten at least their first dosage of either the Moderna or Pfizer vaccine. However, vaccine hesitancy is still strong, especially among minority groups, more specifically, African Americans. From my observation on my personal Facebook, I've seen more rejection of getting a vaccine from minority groups than from my Caucasian friends. A few days ago, I saw a post that said, I'm not getting the vaccine because I'm a part of the control group. You're welcome which my response to that is, you can't be in a control group if you know you are the control group. That's not how research design works. You're supposed to get a placebo. You have to be randomly put in a control group or experimental group. I digress though. Recall that in my first episode, I stated that African Americans were more likely to be conspiratorial inclined than any other racial group, and we shouldn't be surprised about this. Historically speaking, the African-American experience in this country has mostly consisted of being oppressed systematically. We don't have to look far to see evidence of this. African-Americans are less likely to be hired at blue-collar jobs simply because of their name, more likely to live in areas near a toxic waste facility because of unapproved mortgages by banks, and are racially looked down upon by medical institutions. All of these factors and much more are the reason why health experts are doing everything they can to inform African-Americans about the safety and importance of vaccination. The last time I checked, African-Americans were five times more likely to die from COVID-19. I am not sure if those numbers are as accurate now as of this recording, but I do know that of all racial groups, this pandemic has scribbled the African-American community. Unfortunately, as advocates for vaccine attempt to encourage people to protect themselves and others from COVID-19, they are oftentimes reminded of a dark time in American science. The Tuskegee Experiment. So for this episode, I want to do a couple of things. One, talk about the misconception behind the Tuskegee Experiment and why anti-vaxxers have distorted the details of this event. Two, what really occurred in the Tuskegee Experiment. Three, look at how modern-day vaccine hesitancy have decided to respond to this vaccine using the adaptive conspiracism hypotheses. And four, what we have learned since the Tuskegee Experiment. In my very first episode, I mentioned the Tuskegee experiment, and when I described it back then, I said that it was an experiment where African-American men had been injected with syphilis. Now, I have a confession to make. My description in that episode was inaccurate. Look at me spreading misinformation on a podcast that is meant to address misinformation. My bad. However, I've noticed that I'm not the only person who describes the Tuskegee experiment in the same way. When I talked to African-Americans, they share the same misconception of what occurred back in 1932. They will mention how doctors were injecting blacks with syphilis and explain why they don't trust the government, scientists, and doctors. A few days ago, I was watching a Jubilee video on YouTube, the one where pro and vaccine skeptics discuss why they hold their positions on vaccinations. And at a certain point, one of the vaccine skeptics talked about the Tuskegee experiment, but also misrepresented what occurred in Tuskegee, Alabama. I'll leave a link to that video below if you're interested. I actually love watching Jubilee, so I highly recommend it. So I want to take us back to 1932 America. During this time period, African Americans were still becoming accustomed to their freedom. Let's recall that back in 1865, slavery had been abolished in the United States. So from 1865 to 1932, that's a 67-year difference. And so the residue of slavery was still present among African Americans. Also, the Tulsa Massacre during the early 1900s demonstrates the brutality that blacks had to endure from their Caucasian counterparts. I think we can agree that being an African American during this time period wasn't the greatest experience. Around this time, doctors were interested in learning about syphilis, which is a bacterial infection that is transmitted sexually. The disease starts as a painless sore, typically on a person's genitals, rectum, or mouth. As time progresses, if left untreated, it can cause a person to develop rashes all over their body, and at its final stage, it infects the person's internal organs, which ultimately leads to death. If you google it, the images are appalling. Prior to the Tuskegee experiment, a study on white men was conducted in 1928 in Oslo, Norway, to see the effects of untreated syphilis. One of the limitations, according to scientists, was that the information from that experiment did not compare the effects of untreated syphilis on people of color. It was believed that syphilis had a different reaction for African Americans than it did for Caucasians. It was this curiosity that would lead to the most unethical experiment in U.S. history. Starting in 1932, the United States Public Health Service, known as USPHS, and the Center for Disease Prevention, also known as the CDC, started what was intended to be a six-month longitudinal study to see the effects of untreated syphilis. For those who aren't familiar with what a longitudinal study is, it's basically when researchers collect information on the same sample of participants over a long period of time. Both the USPHS and CDC decided that they would conduct this research in Macon County, Tuskegee, Alabama. In total, 600 African-American sharecroppers were enrolled to participate in an experiment, and in return in participating, they were promised free medical care, but as we'll soon find out, that's not exactly what occurred. From the 600 participants of this experiment, 399 of them had latent syphilis, Latent, meaning that the bacteria was already in their body, but they showed no clinical signs of the infection. Instead of informing the 399 people of their diagnosis, this information was kept a secret from them. Now, remember the free medical care that I mentioned? Yeah, they said that only to encourage people to participate. In reality, they were never going to get treated. To create the illusion that participants were actually getting something in return, doctors had told them that they were being treated for bad blood. The term bad blood was used among African-Americans to describe a variety of illnesses. So, for example, if you were feeling like fatigue back in the 1930s, it would be described like, oh, you're just having bad blood. It was that type of thing. Another reason why African-Americans were so willing to participate in this experiment is because some of the physicians that were assisting were African-Americans themselves. Eunice Rivers was a black nurse who was able to gain the trust of the African-American community. As well as being a person of color, she was able to offer participants free meals, free rides to and from the clinics that were conducting this research, and treatment for minor injuries. It's not hard to see why they were so willing to participate. I think anyone would, seeing the circumstances of black people during the early 1900s. Now, it is debated how much she knew about the true intentions of this experiment. However, Eunice Rivers was one of the few individuals who would stay until the fourth shutdown of this experiment. Now, the person in charge of running this experiment was Raymond Vandeleur. I probably butchered his name, so I apologize. At the time, he was the director of the CDC and was willing to do anything to see the study of untreated syphilis succeed. So much so that health practitioners were told not to treat any participant in the Tuskegee experiment if they were to come to them seeking a cure. This practice was even more evident during World War II, when 265 participants had registered for the draft. In doing so, they would be diagnosed with syphilis and would receive treatment. However, the United States Public Health Service did everything in their power to prevent this, ultimately preventing the man from fighting for their country, and worst of yet, to cure their disease. To Vandeleur, the biological understanding of untreated syphilis was more important than the human rights of the participants. Now in 1947, penicillin had become the standard therapy to treat syphilis. However, once again, it was decided that it would be more beneficial to allow syphilis to progress and study it than to treat all the participants. Also notice how we went from 1932 to 1947. Recall that this study was supposed to be 6 months long. Tragically, the experiment would run for 40 years, by which time, of the original 399 that were in the experimental group, 29 had died from syphilis, 100 died from related complications, 40 of their wives had been infected, and 19 children were born with congenital syphilis. Now, the only reason why the experiment of untreated syphilis was stopped wasn't because the people organizing this had a change of heart. In July 1972, Gene Heller, a reporter from the Associated Press News, was giving details of the atrocity that had been occurring for 40 years in Tuskegee, Alabama. She exposed the harmful experimentation that the CDC and USPHS had been engaged in and of course this created an outrage. The same savagery that Americans were so against when condemning Nazi physicians and their experimentation on Jewish civilians was the same savagery that was being discovered back home. What followed after the end and discovery of the Tuskegee experiment was a massive compensation for the victims of the study and reformation of ethical research. Sometime in 1973, a class action lawsuit was filed on behalf of the study participants and their families, resulting in a $10 million out-of-court settlement. The $10 million settlement was divided into four categories. The experimentation group participants received $37,500. Relatives of the deceased experimental group participants received $15,000. The living control group participants received $16,000 and relatives of the disease control group participants received 5,000. In 1974, the National Research Act was signed into law, creating the National Commission for the Protection of Human Subjects of Biomedical and Behavioral Research. The group identified basic principles of research conduct and suggested ways to ensure these principles were followed. In addition to the commission recommendations, regulations were passed in 1974 that required researchers to get voluntary informed consent from all persons taking part in studies done or funded by the Department of Health, Education, and Welfare, also known as DHEW. They required that all DHEW-supported studies using human subjects be reviewed by the International Review Boards, which decides whether research protocols meet ethical standards. And on May 16, 1997, President Bill Clinton issued a former presidential apology for the study. Now, 48 years later, after the termination of the Tuskegee experiment and the trauma of the study still lingers among African-Americans today. It is cited often among African-Americans as the number one reason why they're skeptical of taking the COVID-19 vaccine. According to the Pfizer Family Foundation in 2021, African-Americans make up 27% of the population in the state of Alabama. Of that percentage, they make 29% of death related to COVID-19, 28% of COVID-19-related cases, and 24% of vaccinated African Americans. Compare that to white Americans in the state of Alabama. That makes 68% of the population. Of that percentage, they make 68% of COVID-related deaths, 62% of COVID-19 cases, and 69% of vaccinated American whites. So again... African-Americans make 29% of COVID-19-related deaths in the state of Alabama, but also make 24% of vaccinated people. That's a 5% difference in the wrong direction. While white Americans make 68 percent of COVID-19-related deaths, but having a 69% vaccination rate. Using this information, let's get a better understanding of the thought process among African-American vaccine skeptics using the existential threat model and the adaptive conspiracism hypotheses. Now, in my previous episode, I've spoken about the existential threat model. If you haven't heard that episode, I'll leave a link to the description below so you can get a further understanding of this concept. Now, recall that in the existential threat model, there are three components the existential threat, the understanding of the threat, and the antagonistic outgroup. Let's address the existential threat and the antagonistic outgroup. Among vaccine skeptics and anti vaxxers, the existential threat would be the vaccine, and the antagonistic outgroup would be Big Pharma or the CDC. Now, what about the understanding of the threat? Well, this is where it becomes conspiratorial because the understanding of the threat varies from person to person. For some people, the speed of which the development of the COVID-19 vaccine has raised skepticism of its safety and effectiveness. This is actually a very reasonable concern and one that I initially found myself feeling. Then there are the people who claim to understand the vaccine as a toxin to depopulate the African-American race by making black males sterile and causing miscarriages among African-American women. These people I will label as conspiracy theorists. Now, in the past, I have talked about the different kinds of conspiracy theorists, from ideologue and partisan conspiracy theorists to conspiracy consumers, distributors, and producers. We're now going to explore two different kinds of conspiratorial expressions. In the study titled Conspiracy Theories, Evolved Functions and Psychological Mechanisms, The adaptive conspiracism hypothesis is used to explain conspiracy theories. But what does this hypothesis tell us? According to the adaptive conspiracism hypothesis, conspiracy theories are a form of a defense that helps protect a community of people when the environment is hostile and dangerous. History has shown that many tribal villages were often attacked by other outgroup tribes to take away their resources and, at times, women. It was with this constant threat that people began to detect possible future conspiracies and, at times, overdetecting possible attacks, which led to conspiratorial thinking. We can apply this same thought process to African-American vaccine skeptics and anti-vaxxers who have historically been exploited for scientific knowledge at the cost of their safety and human rights, as was the case in the Tuskegee experiment. The constant fear of being exploited once again by the CDC and scientific community has forced vaccine skeptics and anti-vaxxers to overdetect possible conspiracies. Now you're probably asking, Nelson, you can't say people overdetect possible conspiracies when actual conspiracies occurred. Well, if we use the error management theory, you'll get a better understanding of what I'm talking about. So what is error management theory? If you're a psychology, sociology, or a STEM major, you're probably familiar with the concept of false positive and false negative. For those who are new to this concept, don't worry, I'll explain it. Let's say you're hiking somewhere and at some point during your trip you begin to get a little exhausted due to the obstacles you have to overcome to continue your path. You then decide to look for a stick to help you balance yourself and not twist your knee at a certain point. You then come across what appears to be a stick, but you're not sure whether it's a stick or a poisonous snake. That's just chilling. If you were to assume that what you were looking at was a snake, when in reality it was a stick and decided not to use it to help you on your hiking, you would have engaged in false negative, which is the least consequential of the two in this scenario. Why is that? Because even though you have mistaken the stick for a snake, the consequence of that decision is that you're going to have to look for another stick. However, let's assume that you accidentally mistaken the poisonous snake for a stick and get bitten. Well, the consequences are way more severe, would you not agree? For vaccine skeptics and anti-vaxxers, the vaccine is the snake in their mind. And so, the same thought process occurs. To help understand what I'm talking about, let's add the possible scenarios from a conspiratorial perspective and see all possible outcomes. If a person were to claim that the COVID-19 vaccine was going to kill them and they refused to get the vaccine shot, the consequence of that decision would be them being called a conspiracy theorist. However, if the same person claimed that the COVID-19 vaccine was going to kill them and they actually died, well, the consequence would be a lot more severe. So, while it's reasonable to detect possible malicious intentions from the CDC due to historical experiences, it can also cause groups to overdetect possible conspiracies when no conspiracies are occurring. In the mind of a vaccine skeptic and anti vaxxers, the consequence of being called a conspiracy theorist is less severe than being dead, assuming the vaccine does what they say it does, which it doesn't. Because of the Tuskegee experiment and interpretation of possible outcomes from getting the COVID-19 vaccine, many conspiracy theorists, anti-vaxxers, and vaccine skeptics demonstrate the conspiratorial expression referred to as avoidance-oriented response, which is when people who distrust government and medical institutions avoid any products or treatment that are associated with them. This is very common among minority groups who avoid getting vaccinated due to fear of possible injury and death. These conspiracy theorists differ from the QAnon rioters in January 6th of 2021, who were more approach-oriented and aren't motivated by fear, but by anger, which is what led to the attack on Capitol Hill. Anti-vaxxers are less likely to attack you, unlike QAnon supporters. So as we come to the conclusion of this episode, we need to ask ourselves, what have we learned since the Tuskegee experiment? For one, we actually need to learn the details of the event, Many anti-vaxxers will refer to the Tuskegee experiment as why African Americans shouldn't be vaccinated, but show little awareness that the study had nothing to do with vaccines. It's also important to note that 1932 America was a whole lot different than 2021 America. While racism continues to be a problem in the United States, most students and doctors in the field are not influenced by the racial environment of the early 1900s. Remember, since 1974, major reforms have been passed to ensure that atrocities like the syphilis experiment never occur again. I sincerely believe that we, as a nation, have progressed a lot since those dark days. And at the same time, I admit that we still have much growing to do. I think one of the tragedies of all this is that we really didn't learn much. There's a reason why this event is referred to as the Tuskegee experiment of untreated syphilis in the Negro male. Instead of focusing on the untreated part, anti-vaxxers have used this event to discourage African Americans to not get vaccinated instead of asking why don't African Americans get the same treatment that white Americans do. Thank you for listening to today's episode. And as always, question everything with logic.